Feel free to clap. So this is my full-time job. I'm a filmmaker. I have a little production company. Um, and we do film and commercial stuff, but we also have this web series, um, which we have a YouTube channel, and then we also have a new syndication partnership with Inc. Magazine and Fast Company. So kind of excited about that. So you can see it in lots of different places. Um, what I thought I would, what we're, what we're going to do tonight, here's the plan. This is a live Q&A jam session. This is loose. This is your opportunity to ask the question to the man in the flesh. We're going to do it by, on the honor system, right, where we raise hands. Seth will select you. Then we have a mic runner on both sides to hand you the microphone. And you can ask your most difficult question. Is this personal questions too or just business no, questions? No, no, we'll get into it. Okay. I, gotta, I have rules. Okay. <laughs> so we'll do this Q&A session and we'll, we'll take maybe a little break around seven-ish. Uh, then we'll reset and we'll do a, uh, a live interview. You'll be the live audience. We'll be the people interviewing. We'll sit in this chair and do our interview stuff. Um, so with that said, I'd also like to uh, special thanks to some of our partners and volunteers. Um, I'd like to folk, thank the folks at Veradesk who helped us out. Veradesk does these stand-up desks. I'm very interested in the stand-up uh, workflow. I have to sit a lot doing editing. People at the Home Mag, where's the Home Mag? Woo, thank you very much for Home Mag. There's uh, tables and stuff out there. I encourage you to go meet our partners and find out more what they do, but thank you to the Home Mag. Pepperdine University is here, my alumni association. Pepperdine, thank you. Volunteers from Chapman University are here, where I also guest lecture and help Professor Nicholas's class. Nicholas, thank you. And here. And we also have Column 5. Column 5 folks, thank you so much for coming. They printed some cool stuff out front and have little tote bags for us. And then last but not least, I'd like to thank our nonprofit partners today, I'm Brave, who are in the back. Turn around and wave hello. And hopefully you've had a chance to go talk with them and share your brave moment on camera with them. But I encourage you to go check out their Facebook page or their Instagram page today, I'm Brave. And again, we are donating a portion of the proceeds to their organization. With that said, um, let's get the party started. What do you say? I'm in. Let's okay. go. All right. Let's start the Q&A. Questions? Well, well, no, no, no. I gotta, I, I, I'm good. I got to talk first. Okay, go We're ahead. Good. Thank you. You're the boss. You're, no, you're the boss later when you have the microphone. Okay, that's fair. Hi, thank you for coming. Uh, there's always this moment when I decide to do one of these things when I'm sure there'll be four people there. And as late as 5 o'clock this afternoon, I was like, oh, there's nobody here. So thank you for coming. There's 17 Alt-MBA coaches here. Thank you guys for making the trip and the effort. Uh, we have people from as far away as Denver, people who were born in other lands. Uh, I'm not sure what the flight record is, but I'm grateful and uh, humbled by your attention and your contribution, so thank you. What I want to do today is spend perhaps 10 minutes telling you some of the things I've been thinking about lately, line that up, and then uh, for over an hour we will have a Q&A session. Let me tell you before I start my riff so that you can think about this. Here's what makes a good question. A good question has very little background material about you in the question. The second thing a good question does is it asks something that other people in the room aren't brave enough to ask. Either intellectually brave enough because you see something, a whole or a concept that other people, once they hear the question, will go, oh yeah. Or it's something 
that other people would feel dumb asking and you don't feel dumb asking? Or it's something where it would push me to dig deeper into an area because that's where I learn the most and I will do my best on the fly to think about a different way of thinking about it. So my goal is to be able to answer 20, 30 questions. That's a lot. So we're going to keep it moving, okay? But we begin with a couple problems. The first problem is that half of the children in Ethiopia are malnourished, half. And that one of the reasons for that is that protein is hard to find. So David Ellis saw that this was going on, and he figured out that if you got a different breed of chicken growing in Ethiopia, one that was more suited to the environment, it could make a difference. And last year, Ethio chicken birthed 365 million chicks, a million chicks a day. And 40 days after those chicks are born, they go to a farmer who buys them, one or two or three at a time, and those chickens last for months or years laying eggs. They lay five times as many eggs as the chickens that they are replacing that are now soup. Five times as many. So one person saw a problem, brought something to that problem, something that wasn't particularly innovative or original. People have been doing chicken husbandry for a long time if there's such a thing. And he changed the world. In the United States, there's a problem, two problems. First part of the problem is that we put more people in prison than any major country. And the second problem, even more pathetic, is that we make it really hard when they get out of prison for them to have a life. 77% of the people who go to prison go back. Kat Hoke saw that there was a problem, and at the age of 26, with very little resources, she decided to do something about it. And she built an institution now called Defy Ventures. And if you are part of Defy Ventures, there's only a 6% chance you're going to go back to prison. Basically an infinite increase in good results. And I have 300 other examples of problem identification and solution. These people, Jacqueline Novogratz runs the Acumen Foundation, Nathan Winograd, who invented the no-kill animal shelter in San Francisco, are changing the world. And they're my friends, and I am proud to know them. But when we think about it, we realize two other things. The first thing we realize is they're not changing the world. Their teams are changing the world. The people who have supported them are changing the world. The people they have influenced, or the people who are copying them, or the people who have let them into the, their facilities are changing the world. So really, we are changing the world. And the second thing is that in every single one of the cases I told you, no one picked these people to do the work. No one gave these people adequate resources. No one told these people that they were right. And in fact, most people told them that they were wrong. And when I think about the leverage that exists in our world today, the leverage that each one of us has, that for the first time in recorded history, which means all history, which means ever, we are each connected to two billion other people. So when I was in Kibera, the largest slum in Kenya, I was working with people, they were, they actually have 
one of the uh, largest and most active book groups I've ever engaged with. Um, people who make three or four dollars a day and they all have a phone and their phone is connected to your phone. That everywhere in the world, people are connected to one another for free. And what are we doing with it, right? What are we watching on our phone? More cat videos? Are we worried about how many Instagram followers we have? So this is not a talk today about the fact that each of us has an obligation to heal the world, to kunalam, figure out how to make it better. That's part of it, but really what it is, is a chance to restate so many of the things that industrialists have taught us about fitting in, about doing what we're told, about being the best at something as measured by easily measured metrics. And as my mission has evolved, it has become more and more clear to me that I am a teacher and that what I am trying to teach, the lights I am trying to turn on with help from people like Kelly and Marie and the rest, is we don't have to play by those rules if we don't want to. And that we live in the safest world in history, the healthiest world in history, and we are the richest people who ever lived. And the question is, what are we going to do with that and how are we going to use it to make an impact? So a couple of things I want to riff on, some of which may appear in my new podcast, I can't remember. Uh, one of them is, people ask, how can I get more confidence? How can I get more confidence to put my work in the world? How can I get more confidence to raise my hand? How can I get more confidence to raise money, raise a question, raise a team? And I think it's the wrong question. Because as soon as you ask that question, you're viewing the world as a threat, you're viewing yourself as inadequate. Feels to me like the right question is, how can I get more generous? Because if I can be more generous, if I can say, how do I bring this chicken to Ethiopia? How do I bring this question to the other 200 people in the room? How do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? We get out of our own head. And we have a chance instead to live in a connection economy that's based on abundance, abundance of information, abundance of trust, as opposed to an industrial economy that's based on scarcity. Not enough scarce, not enough shelf space, not enough real estate listings, not enough this, not enough that. And so we see ourselves as weavers of where we're going to go next. Right? So, you know, my friend Dane is here. Dane's book has helped photographers around the world make, I don't know, $50 million more money than they would have made if he hadn't written the book. And when Dane sat down to write the book, he didn't say, how am I going to get 10% of that money back to me? He said, if I can weave together a world where professional photographers can do better work and get rewarded for it, that's enough. Because our enemy is not piracy. Our enemy is not someone's going to steal our idea. Our enemy is obscurity, that we are not known and we are not trusted. But if you can be known and be trusted for the right reasons, then you have more leverage than ever before. So are there marketing tactics? Of course. And should we discuss them? Let's. I'm totally up for that. I believe that human beings are really complicated creatures. Nobody here drives a used Yugo, even though it's the cheapest car available. Right? Nobody here is dressed head to toe in polyester that they bought at the dollar store down the street. It would keep you from being naked. The Yugo would have gotten you here. But we make choices. We make choices about how we spend our time and how we spend our money. 
because we're humans. And as humans, we're operating, always bouncing back and forth between fear and possibility. And so the last part of my extemporaneous riff is this. One of the things the cat taught me is that you can't be curious and angry at the same time. And that's one of the most profound things I've ever learned. And it's so much more useful to be curious. Everybody's afraid of something. And if you can't figure out why someone isn't acting the way you need them to act, look for the fear. That when a critic says they don't like something, they're right. They don't like it. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with their work. It just means it's not for them. It just means they're afraid of something. It just means someone got there before you. That's okay. It's not for them. I am not a mass marketer. I am not interested in reaching everyone. I don't think you should be interested in reaching everyone. Everyone doesn't buy anything. Everyone doesn't vote for anyone. Everyone doesn't do what you want them to do. But someone, someone does. And enough someones, and you can make a life. So with that, who wants to kick us off? Go for it. Um, school teacher. Yeah. Sorry. School, school teacher and a podcaster. Thank you. Wish you've been on. Appreciate it. Um, so my biggest obstacle lately is to um, get parents to recognize um, what we see formally as a risk is not a risk. Yep. Uh, my my 17 year old daughter has a 3.9 GPA and doesn't want to go to college. Mm -hmm. You're partly to blame. Thank you. Um, Good. To which my wife is not overly pleased. But uh, but uh, but seriously, in in the in I have an unusual class, and it's convincing some of the parents that. Um, they're still so brainwashed that they have to go to Stanford and have to go to college if they want to be a success. And now Generation Z is seeing things very differently. Yeah. And they're seeing more leisure time in relationships paramount over the work really hard and at age 50 you can have friends. Um, so how do, I start con how do I start convincing more parents to ease off, well, both simultaneously ease off some of my students and yeah. at the same time still encourage them to be at their peak level? It's a great question with many levels of nuance. Uh, a couple words that I want to highlight, though, is convince. How do I convince people of this? Uh, the thing is, we begin by looking for the fear. What is the parent afraid of? Well, the parent's afraid of two things. One, the horrible feeling in their own head if their kid ends up not, quote, amounting to anything, that they have let them down. And two, they're really afraid of what the neighbors and the family will think of them as parents. And we are tribal creatures, and we can't deny those two fears. The fact that the fact is that an expensive college is not worth more than a cheap college, that mostly what you're getting when you go to college is high school but with more binge drinking, that being a quarter of a million dollars in debt is an economically difficult situation. All of that is beside the point. Because one of the things we talk a lot about in the Alt-MBA is it's very difficult to get people to move toward a future that doesn't feel like the future they want to move toward. We have to sell that vision first. So that's where the term enrollment comes in. And we're going to talk about this over and over again. Enrollment. If there's no such thing as mandatory education because you can make someone sit in their chair, but you can't make them learn anything. At some point, people voluntarily learn things. 
and we have more baseball fans than we have history fans because it's more fun to be enrolled in learning baseball. Gaining enrollment is more than 12th graders and 10th graders. It's also parents. So the challenge to the parent, or let's say you're married to somebody and your 16-year-old says, I don't want to go to college. One parent says yes, one parent says no. There's a, a friction there. The challenge is to gain enrollment in where are we actually going. If you and I both want to go to San Francisco, we can have a conversation about whether we should take a big van, fly, or take the train. We don't have to argue about much at that point, just which one's faster, easier, cheaper. But we both have agreed to go to San Francisco. So it begins with this. It begins with, do I have your enrollment to talk about what would be best for this person, this 17-year-old, going forward that might lead to a happy outcome? Because if I don't have enrollment from you, I'm never going to convince you of anything. And so gaining enrollment is the thing we all skip over. But once we gain enrollment by understanding worldview, by telling stories, by using peer pressure, by creating tension, by lots of other things that we call marketing, then we can sit on the same side of the table and say, what do parents like us do with kids like this? And then things unfold. So I, I'm not going to spend the whole night talking about it, but I wanted to just push back and say, the place where you're in trouble is not that you're not explaining the thing right. It's that you're not getting enrollment before you explain it. And gaining enrollment is the hardest part of teaching anything. But convincing those parents is so difficult because I've, I've got a girl that wanted to be an art student. Uh-huh. Right. Even though they know that she's, and by the way, they weren't going to pay for any of the college. So she was signing up for 100K debt, and she's like, I'd like to start branding myself now. And they said, that's fooey, that's... Right, because there isn't enrollment between the two of them as to what the goal is. Right? So you have to leave, but my point is, the art is irrelevant to the conversation until there's enrollment in what, does, what do we want for this human. How do I enroll Right. How do we enroll parents? And so when you think about, for example, the parent who wants their kid to go to West Point and the parent who's sure they don't want their kid to go to West Point. That, something happened a long time ago before the kid was even born about that. So that's the conversation. What are, we are we having a conversation about stickers, car stickers? Because what could simulate that car sticker experience for you, etc. So we'll come back to this as we go around in the loop, but thank you for kicking us off in that direction. Uh, all the way in the back in that lovely um, color that I don't know the name of it. <laughs> uh, um, what do we call that? Wait, it's right on the tip I would of say mauve? Coral, that's coral. Coral, coral, coral. coral salmon. Thank you. Something like that. Um, salmon. Seth Godin, I saw you speak in um, 2011 at Stern um, NYU, and you changed my life then, and I feel like this is going to happen again right now. Ah, thank you. Um, question for you about curiosity. How do you manage to be someone who is wildly curious and yet also insanely productive from a writing standpoint, from a publishing standpoint? At some point, you have to stop reading and then decide to work. How do you manage that, especially today with the proliferation of yeah. just insights everywhere? Um, I'm, there's two parts to this question, so let me try to answer each one. Curiosity doesn't mean reading more but I'm a big fan of reading. Curiosity means being prepared to make an assertion. So when you see something you don't understand, 
you have to either walk on by, which dulls the mind, it's apathy, or you have to say, maybe it's like this because of that. So for example, some of you know I rant about the showers in hotels. The showers in hotels should all be exactly the same design because there's no prizes for innovation. It should be like you turn it and it gets hot, you turn it and it gets cold, that's all it does. The one uh, last night in LA was three nested dials. And if you turned it one way, it got cold, and you turned it the other way, it got hot. But if you turned it all the way past hot, it stopped getting hot and made the other head put water out. <laughs> right? Now, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, not, that sucks. But I'm saying, someone thought this was a good idea. And I'm curious about that. Now, there's no way for me to read about it. There's no book on shower design for hotels. If there was, there'd be no problems. So I started imagining, what's the worldview of somebody who finally gets a chance to either design a shower controller or buy one for a hotel? And what are the pressures on them? And what are the stories they need to tell their boss? So I asserted something. And I was probably wrong, but that's a version of curiosity, that the way we become designers of a future is by asking three questions. Who's it for? What's it for? And how will I know if it's working? That's design thinking, those three questions. So the who's it for was clearly not me, was clearly no business traveler at 3 o'clock in the morning that this was for them. So who was it for? Well, maybe it was for the architect trying to persuade the client that this hotel could charge extra because it had hip architecture. Oh, what's it for? To give the architect, give her something fresh and new that she could brag about in a meeting. Oh, how will I know if it's working? Because the client says you can build the hotel. That's my series of assertions. So that's the kind of curiosity I'm talking about. Second half of your question was about being productive, and I think there's a couple things here. The first is, I don't have a television and I don't go to meetings. So I, and I don't use Twitter or Facebook. So I got 10 hours on almost everybody. <laughs> and, but the second thing is that either you develop this instinct to ship or you don't. And the reason I think everyone should have a daily blog, even if no one reads it, even if you write under an assumed name, is because every night you go to bed knowing you got to write something when you wake up in the morning. And your subconscious will do it. My friend, the late Isaac Asimov, wrote 400 books, published 400 books in his lifetime. Books, of course, the science fiction, but books on the Bible and science and lots of other things. How did he do it? Isaac, I say, how did you do it? He says, it's simple. Every morning I wake up at 6.30 and I go to the manual Underwood typewriter in my living room overlooking Lincoln Center and I type and I type until noon and then I'm done for the day. And it doesn't matter if what I type is good. I just keep typing. And once your subconscious knows you're going to type no matter what, it gets better. Because it says, I don't want to waste my time writing bad stuff. I'll make the best stuff I can. Because it didn't work. It didn't, he couldn't stop himself. He just kept typing. That is possible today. But we have to get past this idea that it has to be perfect and polished and everyone has to like it. Because the critics that don't like it are merely telling you it wasn't for them. So now you know who's it for and what's it for. So thank you for that beautiful question. What else we got? Yes, sir. Um, since I'm teaching uh, college students uh, about marketing, and I hear, 
I hear that you tell, don't get trapped in digital marketing. Uh, right. What advice would you give me to change up my class for them to be useful in the age of artificial intelligence? Okay, so digital marketing. It's interesting to note that the modern 800 number was invented in 1983. But between 1983 and 2000, no one talked about telephone marketing, 800 number marketing. We used the phone, but we were talking to each other. We didn't call it phone marketing. And just because it's digital doesn't mean it's different. We're still humans. There's a series of tactics. There's a series of dials that need to be turned. Someone cheaper than you could be hired to turn those dials. Soon, computers will turn those dials. That the iterative process of scientific advertising and iteration is going to get more and more done by AI and computers. It's, can, it's a fairly easy problem to solve in the long run. But being human, that's like one of the last problems AI is going to solve. And so that's the opportunity, is don't tell me you're an expert at Facebook yield optimization, because that might be worth a dollar today, but tomorrow it's worth a dime. Tell me you're an expert at seeing humans for who they really are and what they're afraid of and what they want to become, and that you're good at telling a story that's true, that lights up their eyes. And if that's the case, it doesn't matter if they're dialing 1-800-ABCDEFG or if they are working on the cutting edge of augmented reality. None of that matters. The technology is going to keep changing. We don't need technology specialists. We need human specialists. Thanks. Yes, sir. Jeff, thank you. Uh, we have a microphone for you. You have to give it back when you're done, though. I will. So my question is, before the All-MBA and leading up into it, to, to you founding it, what changed in your worldview that said, I must create this in the world? Yeah, thank you. So uh, the Alt-MBA is certainly the most time-consuming, expensive, and difficult thing I have built since I was building software companies years ago. And I haven't written a book for publication in more than two years. There's a re those things are aligned, and there's a reason for it. I'm not an author, and I'm not in the business of cutting down trees. I'm a teacher. And the world told me, really clearly, it doesn't want to read books. That nobody goes up to Jill Soloway and says, you should be really proud of me. I watched the entire hour of Transparent. I got all the way to the end. But people regularly come up to me and say, I finished the whole book. I'm glad it was only 149 pages long. And I, fine, I don't want to punish you. you don't, and so we, I'm in the change business. So I made some video courses, and video courses are going to get looked back a few years from now, and people are going to say, people paid for that? Because it's digital content, and digital content goes towards zero. And what happens in the typical online video course, where it's just a series of videos, is almost no one finishes, and the people who do finish are binging it, and they're not actually changing because we don't have an access to content problem in North America. There's infinite access to content. We have other problems. And the biggest problem is, in this space, in order to learn something, you must momentarily become incompetent. You must go to a moment where you didn't know something, and then you know it. And that feeling of stretching, well, we taught all of you how to do it. You're supposed to ask a question first. And the question is, will this be on the test? So I promise you a piece of paper if you are willing to write down everything I say and then say it back to me tomorrow. 
That was the excuse, the simple mass way of getting people to learn something. But online, you can have a test, but it doesn't count because a piece of paper doesn't matter. And I don't believe in tests anyway. So how was I going to create a world, uh, an institution, that stretched people, really stretched them and helped them see things differently? So I sat down and said, what if I did the opposite of everything a typical online course does? No videos, not 100,000 people at a time, but 125 people at a time. Not on your own, but real coaches live. Not uh, somebody telling you what to do, but groups engaging with each other face-to-face. -face. Not, here's my work, do I get a good grade, but here's my work and my peers are going to review it, and then I'm going to review their work, and then they're going to respond to their reviews, and you're going to get more feedback than you've gotten in the last five years of your life, and you're going to give more feedback than you've given. And if I could do that not for an hour or a day, but for 30 days in a row until you couldn't handle stopping the shift from happening, maybe I could change 125 people. So that's what it was, as an experiment. And the first one we launched with no experienced coaches, because it was the first time, stitching together all this software, and then I was going to be done, and I could go back to doing what I do. But it worked. And Kelly said, let's do that again. So we did. And now we're up to what number? No, but we just finished number 18? 18. And so there's 44 countries and 650 cities with alumni in them now. And I am committed to doing this as long as people want to do it with us. But we're not going to lower our standards, and we're not going to get bigger just because we want to get bigger. We've set it up so we can keep it at the pace where we are changing the people we need to change in the way that the change needs to happen. So uh, it's such a privilege to be able to be part of this. And I've intentionally set up so I'm not in it. And that gives me the freedom to not you know, be wearing a lifeguard jacket. I have other people who know how to run it way better than I ever could. Yes, sir. Hi, thank you. I'm glad that my friend Dane is next to me because I don't know very much about you, but I've heard your name uh, perhaps millions of times. Uh, I'm running for Congress here in... Uh, You're not going to ask me for money, are you? Because uh, yeah, that's well, usually uh, the sentence that comes after that. I, I, uh, just, just five minutes uh, after the meeting here. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this idea of uh, being negative versus being positive. This Love idea this question. of defining your opponent. And in my case, my opponent is being investigated by four agencies, including Robert Mueller. And every day I wake up wanting to be positive and wanting right. to define my vision, value, mission, and who sure. I really am against somebody who clearly is beleaguered. Got it. Help me. These are, these are great questions. So I need to explain something to most people, which is we see so many billions of dollars of political marketing that we believe we need to market like politicians. Now, you are a politician, so we're going to leave that aside for a second. The biggest difference between political marketers and everyone else is political marketing is the only marketing where you got to get more than half. And that changes everything. Like, my wife owns a chain of gluten-free bakeries. Almost no one in the world has had her stuff. That's fine. She's still the biggest gluten-free bakery in the East Coast because you don't need that many people to have a business. So most of us need to think about the fact that a majority is an illusion. 
you're in a different situation. So here's what happened. In 1961, some consultants figured out that the single easiest way to win an election is to get your opponent's supporters to not vote. And the reason, if we look at the tenor of American politics as well as voter out, uh, uh, attendance, is TV ads are really effective at getting your opponent's supporters to not show up. So we have this anti-democratic thing going on for my entire lifetime of trying to make that happen. However, there are really profound counterexamples that show that if you can earn the trust and attention of just a small percentage of the people, not only will they eagerly show up, they will bring their friends. And that is how Barack Obama got elected twice. If you think about the odds that were against a black man who was a neophyte, who was bucking his own establishment to win twice, he didn't do it by being better at getting the other side to not show up. He did it by creating an environment where people, well, Marshall Gans is, was uh, one of his teachers. Marshall Gans is a professor at Harvard. He worked with Cesar Chavez all the way up till t today. Marshall has a three-step process. Here it is. And it works for everybody, not just politicians. Story of self, which means testify. Why are you here? Story of us, meaning why is my story your story? That's the hardest part. And then story of now. Why should you care today, not tomorrow? And Marshall, in his trainings, which I've taken, demonstrates this with how effective the gay marriage movement was. Because the gay marriage movement was built on those three steps. It was not a political movement. In fact, you can track everything in politics that happened associated with gay marriage happened exactly nine years after the cultural thing happened. And that's true with almost every, there are exceptions, but with almost everything that happens in politics, it happens nine or 10 years after the culture shifts. So your job as a politician who wants to change something who doesn't have more money, right, and can't just depress the other side, is to figure out story of self, story of us, story of now. Earn permission to talk to people. And this is the reason I have a fairly uh, well-thought answer to this is Congress people call me on the phone all the time. And what I say to them is, I can give you advice that's worth more than the money you're asking me for. If you read these three books, I'll give it to you. And then I send them the three books, and they never call me back. <laughs> One congressman in 15 in the last year has called me back. And because the consultants say, no, you have this much money you have to raise today. Why do they say that? Because they get a percentage of it, and that's what they do for a living. The alternative is say, how would I run if I had no money? And the answer is, I would earn permission to email people who want to hear from me on a regular basis to educate them in a way that they can convert their friends. That costs zero. And if you can do that and do that and do that, you will win in a landslide if you are in the right district and your story resonates, right? And that shift is slowly happening in American politics. And the last thing I'll say about politics is cable TV understands that you are not the customer. You are the product. You are the product that they sell to the advertiser. So the purpose of cable TV is not to tell you the truth. The purpose of cable TV is to make you panicked 
or angry, so you will watch more. And so the truth of our culture and who we are as a people is not reflected in what we see on cable TV. And the job that each of us have if we want to heal our culture is not to do it uh, necessarily in an annual march, but to do it over lunch, one person at a time, three people at a time, five people at a time. And the biggest marketing lesson I will share with you tonight is seven words. People like us do things like this. And that is what the definition of culture is. Right? So Chelsea and her partner are here. They make the most beautiful stationery in America. It's not for everybody. It's for almost nobody. But the people it's for are people who know that when they send out a thank you note on this letterhead or a, a wedding invitation, it will go to people who say, oh, you're people like me, because people like us buy stuff like this. And the same thing's true when you're selling real estate, and the same thing's true when we're trying to run for something. So the opportunity here is not to be a beleaguerer and not to shame another human, but in fact to shame behavior and to say people like us don't stand for behavior like this from you or from me or from anybody else. And that's an identity thing. That's story of us. That's not story of him. And going back to that again and again and investing your effort in how you can tell that narrative in a way that doesn't get lost in the noise. The daily poll numbers are not nearly as important as the long-term arc of what each of us are trying to build. So thank you for teeing that up. What a coincidence. Hi. Wait, we're bringing you a microphone. So um, the culture that I'm trying to change right now is my internal culture. Yep. And your friend Bernadette Jiwa changed my perspective on who we hire and why we hire them. The challenge that I'm struggling with is in that interview, I don't know how to get to the heart of that, right. and then they're mine, whether they are culturally right or not. So I know you have really good tactics about, you know, when you're submitting an application, put tricks in there that they have to get right. Do you have more tips like that to like find the heart of the person that we're talking to? So I'm gonna go all the way back to the first question from tonight, which is, I think we have to go several steps up to answer this question. So what Chelsea's asking about is, if I get the internal culture right, it's clear that benefits are paid, but getting the internal culture right when there's turnover and when I'm paying people not $100,000 a year but closer to a, a minimum wage, how do I keep that working? Well, let's say, how many letterpress machines do you own still? Four. When you bought a letterpress machine, did you pick it in an hour? Or was there a lot of thought and process and detail and this, I need this machine? But we've already acknowledged that the people are more important than the letterpress machine, but you're spending less time on the people than you spent on the letterpress machine. That what, it, you know, when I started Yoyodyne, it took seven people shoveling coal into a computer to send an email out every day to a million people. <laughs> now you can do that on MailChimp for $4. So the technology has given us all this leverage. And yet, even though each one of us is only in the people business, it's all we got, we don't own factories, we're acting like, oh, anyone can do this job, so I'll hire anyone. But if that's your competitive advantage, for a $35,000 a year job, you might need to spend $35,000 to hire somebody. And you've got to figure out how to build that into your pricing. There isn't a tip, there isn't a trick, there isn't a shortcut. 
If, if this is what you're going to be known for, you've got to figure it out. So Chick-fil-A pays a store manager $230,000 a year. Do you know how you become a store manager of a Chick-fil-A? You've got to clean the fryer, and you've got to mop the floor. That's the only way you get hired. You start at the bottom, and you work your way up. And because they have this dedication and this obvious outcome at the end, people put up with becoming great floor moppers because they can see that they can become enrolled in this journey of what's in it for me. Where does this go? So, you know, I've had, uh, I've been very lucky sometimes with the people I hire, but the one thing I can see is the times I'm right the most is when I hire people I've already worked with. Because now I'm not hiring someone who's good at interviewing. I'm hiring someone who's good at their job. And so I try to create processes where someone does a project for me for money, where someone works with me for a while. That the way you become a coach in the Alt-MBA is you take the Alt-MBA and we secretly spy on you the whole time. And we take the best people and say, you want to be a coach? And that model is going to cost you time and money. But you're not going to get as many clunkers if you can figure out how to invest in it. What else we got? You guys are asking amazing questions. Yes, sir. Here comes a runner, and look at him run. <laughs> Thank you. So when I go on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, there's almost endless books when it comes to marketing or business. Uh, as somebody has written a lot of books. What advice would you give to somebody interested in writing a book but coming up with a topic that's unique outside of what's already out there? Okay, so uh, I don't want to talk for four hours about this, but I'll talk briefly. Writing a book in this moment is a priceless way to earn tension, to earn trust, to earn confidence. It is a stupid way to earn a living, a really stupid way to earn a living. Uh, we're publishing Cat Hoke's book in, in 10 days, and it's going to change the lives of a lot of people. It's not going to make a penny as a book. But if Cat hands a best-selling book to somebody and says, this is what we do, she's going to get a $20,000 check, a $100,000 check. Because not only is she building this anti-recidivism organization, she's a best-selling author and her book will make you cry. So the book, particularly as a business book, is transformative. It's a side effect that non-donors will read it and become better, right? It's a side effect that people who don't care about prison reform will read it and get better. We worked hard to make that true. It's a generous act. But what's it for? What's it for is to amplify Defy's place in the world and to solidify their story, right? So if you want to do what I do for a living and actually write a book that no one's written before, it's really hard. And I can't give you three minutes of advice about how to do that. <laughs> I mean, I would tell you if I knew. I'm not hoarding the secret. In my experience, it happens because you get good at making assertions and you make an assertion, and when you say it to six people, they would take notes. And then you say, whoa. Like, so when I wrote the dip, the dip took 17 days to write. There was no research involved in writing the dip. I just wrote it because I realized no one had ever written about quitting. And, but that's because I worked every single day for four years before that on ideas you've never read that didn't work the way my narrative about quitting worked. So that's how you do that part. But those days are officially over, where someone can come out of the blue, like my friend Bernadette, write a book, 
that makes her famous. Because Bernadette has written four or five amazing books, and she's not famous because it's 2018. It's too hard. Thank you. We have some front row folks here. Hi, um, I am a marketer in the Proud of it. I am pr a proud, proud marketer, traditional and digital. Um, and I do tend to focus on human triggers um, as motivation for the work that I do. And there's a lot, but one that has me stumped is the idea of exclusivity as a human trigger. Okay. And we see it happening, right? Right. We see these... But I'm having a hard time getting my, my head around the recipe for that. Let me just be really clear with what you mean by exclusivity. We're talking about like supreme and, and luxury goods. Are we talking about what? I'm talking about sort of campaigns and approaches that drive people to action, that give them the perception that they're seeing maybe behind the red velvet rope or they, okay. they're attracted to the thing that they not everybody can have. Okay, so this is a... A juicy topic that I've been waiting to talk about. It's the thing I've been spending an enormous amount of time on for the last few months. Um, Keith Johnstone wrote a book in 1964 called Impro that even actors and directors don't know about, and it's about acting and directing and education. And his argument is that all good theater, all good movies, all good novels, almost everything in our life that's juicy is based on status roles. And you're either high or you're low. Shakespeare all the way to The Godfather. So let me act out The Godfather so you understand what I'm talking about. Opening scene, first movie. Can any of you visualize it? What's the very first thing that happens? The wedding, right? So The Godfather's daughter is getting married. In the Sicilian tradition, on your daughter's wedding day, you must grant a favor if someone asks you for a favor. Who has the highest status in the land? The Godfather. He has killed people to maintain his status. And in fact, his entire life works because he is perceived as having the highest status. He's sitting in his office. It's dark, oak-paneled. The Undertaker comes, 96-pound, Bonacera, little drip of a guy. Is there anything lower status than the drip of a guy who's the Undertaker? No. It's like a parody. So the Undertaker comes, and he says to the Godfather... My daughter has been sexually abused, harassed, and her, the perpetrators went free. I want you to kill them. And then he has the temerity to say, I'll pay you. So now he's treating the godfather like a hired thug. Status goes down. If Buena Sera pulls it off, his status goes up. And you can feel the tension in the room. He's about to be killed because he's done this thing, taken advantage of the daughter's wedding day to do this thing that will forever mark the godfather as a low-status person. And it's a very complicated six-second edit. But what happens is, the next thing you know, Bonacera's on his knees, kissing the godfather's ring and saying, will you do me this favor, my friend? And pledging his allegiance to the high-status godfather. So normality is restored. And the rest of the movie is just that, up and down, over and over and over again. So once you see status roles, you can't unsee them. And all you got to do is visit Southern California, any car lot, any, you know, what, what is the purpose of the front lawn? Why do we have front lawns? It turns out front lawns were invented in England in the 16 and 1700s as a way of saying to your neighbors, 
I don't need to graze sheep to raise a living. I can take sheep grazing land and waste it. Status, right? So exclusivity of almost any form is a chance for status. You saw the video before someone else saw the video. You have a Supreme shirt that sold out after six minutes. You got to fly in this part of the plane, not that part of the plane, even though the whole plane lands at the same time, right? <laughs> and so status is true. We can't deny it's true. So as marketers who seek to make a difference, we are allowed to use, in fact, we are required to use status to cause people to take action. So let's go back to Ethiopian chicken. We could assume that everybody wants their kids to not be malnourished. And at some level, it's true. And yet, when you show up with chickens, not everyone's going to buy one because they have fear. And the fear is, what if I buy a chicken with food money and the chicken isn't great? doesn't lay eggs. I can't tell, right? What will happen if that happens? I'll be in trouble with my family. But if we can add to this, all your neighbors have chickens already because they care about their kids. You got to do it because otherwise your status will be irreparably harmed. So you're not actually doing it to feed your kid because you, of course you care about your kid, but the trigger was I can't get left behind because the chicken guy's leaving town and if all my neighbors have chickens and I don't have chickens... It's going to hurt me for years to come. So we see it with the poorest people in the world and the richest people in the world. And we see it used as a tool to shame women. And we see it used as a tool to break our democracy. It's all about what are these status roles and what are we keeping track of. So don't use it in an evil way because humans do. It's a big power and we have to own the power of how we're using this narrative to cause behavior to change. So thank you for teeing that up. Okay, what else we got? We're on a roll. Yes, sir. Okay, Seth, um, of all the people that operate in your space, they're either in, you're in your occupation or in your industry, who do you have the greatest respect for that you also have the greatest difference of opinion with and why? One of the cool things about the book business is we blurb each other's books. And we want our books to be sold next to each other's books. Right? When you go to a BMW dealership, they don't have Lexuses right next to the BMWs. And you will never see Tim Cook put on the back of a Pixel box, I love the Pixel phone. I strongly suggest you buy one. <laughs> right? But in the book industry, we do it all the time. And the reason is, they're not the competition. The average American buys one book a year. That uh, the average book that's a huge bestseller is read by one out of every 350 Americans. Which means other is the competition. That the competition is apathy. The competition is YouTube. So we're all on the same team. What that permits us to do is happily steal from each other, learn from each other, shift gears with each other. And um, when I see someone like Steve Pressfield, who has written one of the most profound books of all time, The War of Art, refuse 
to actively do all the things that gurus, in quotation marks, are supposed to do to hustle their book because he wants to get back to work. I have huge respect for that because the fact is all the hustling in the world doesn't sell that many more books. Writing an amazing book sells more books. On the other extreme, nobody works harder than Gary. And I have huge differences of opinion about delivery, about interrupting people, about profanity, and about hustle. I am not a fan of hustle. But I am totally in awe of how hard this person works. And somebody who cares that much and puts that much effort into it, you have to, at some level, respect that. And Gary's my friend, and we've known each other a long time. So, you know, there's a long list of people I was saying to Brian before we started. When I was 25 years old, I was friends with Tom Peters, Jay Levinson, Chip Conley, and Guy Kawasaki. Like, what are the odds of that? It's insane. Tom's book had just come out. Guy hadn't written a book. I hadn't written a book. Chip hadn't written a book. Jay hadn't fully formed the guerrilla marketing thing. It was just a weird world's colliding thing. And when we, all of us see each other, there's zero friction about this. And so there's not a lot of grudges that go on. What we know is that human beings are complicated. And most of my peers sell more books than I do. Most of my peers have bigger followings than I do because they are touching a different button on a different group of people who want a different thing, who are afraid of a different thing. And that's totally fine with me. I don't covet that. I know what that would be like, and I know how to do it. But I'm trying to serve a different person who's looking for a different thing. And that's totally cool. So thank you for that one. Well, yes, sir. I lead a young architecture studio. We specialize in hotel shower designs. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, my, my question is about employee retention. Yeah. I'm, I'm, this is an honest question. Um, I'm scared and nervous that the excitement that I was able to provide in year one, two, three, and four, yes. I'm, I'm scared I can't replicate that of to course. get the talent that has stayed with me so long. Yep. And I, I just, any insight for a small business on how to retain the excitement that kept you know what it is. So. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant question. Okay, so uh, a couple of small name checks along the way here. Tom Peters, 25 years ago, controversially said you should have a regular session to help your entire team improve their resume. Because if the only reason they're staying is they can't get a job somewhere else, you don't want them. That you want to be the place of choice. And if they have a weaponized Class A resume and they still can't find a place better than yours, now you're going to have the right kind of retention, not the retention of laziness or inertia. But the second name check is the idea of Jeff Moore and crossing the chasm plus Everett Rogers' product adoption life cycle. So let me try to do this with an invisible piece of paper and an invisible Sharpie. There's a normal distribution here. Can you all visualize that? It's called the normal distribution because 88% of the people in the middle are normal and the 12% of the people on either edge are weird. And uh, normal people have certain buying behaviors. So for example, they all waited till DVD players were $88 at Walmart before they bought one. Very few normal people bought a $5,000 DVD player. They waited. Normal people right, 
don't have a 12 flashing on their VCR. They got rid of the VCR a long time ago. It's the center of the market. Well, this idea, as Rogers pointed out, that a product moves through the curve. Certain people buy it when it's new, brand new Tesla Roadster nine years ago, because they want to tell people they have the new thing. Some people wait till everyone has one. People like us do things like this. And some people have to be dragged at the last minute because their Model T has no parts available for it, right? <laughs> and what Moore pointed out is that in between the early adopters, the geeks, the nerds, and the normal people, there's not this stepwise wonderful curve. There's a chasm, a gap. Because these people want something totally different than these people. And the best example is the Newton. Everyone says the Apple Newton, what a disaster, total failure. Actually, it sold more than 100,000 units in just a couple months. These people bought it. I bought it. But these people said, it doesn't work, and didn't buy one. Failure. Fell into the chasm. So now when we're thinking about recruiting and hiring, exactly the same math works. There are some architects who want to work at Skidmore Owens in Merrill. Is that what still called that? SOM. Because they're right in the middle. They can brag to their parents. They can point to the buildings. It's not just safe. It's prestigious. It's status. It's tell me what to do. Surround me but with enough soft tissue that I'm not going to get in trouble. And then there's people who say, yeah, I got hired by Facebook. I'm the in-house software architect, and I'm using everything I learned from Taliesin to design user interface so that they can tell all their friends, I'm working on something new. Right. So you got the best of breed nerds and early adopters to join you at the beginning. But these people have changed as humans, and your institution has changed. And so now you have to take a deep breath and say, well, do I need those thrill seekers to leave so that I can bring in the kind of heavy hitters that get me Marriott as a client, right? Because a lot of firms do that. Or do you say, we're always going to be here in the froth and I'm building a studio, right? So that was the choice I had to make 10 or 15 years ago because lots of people have built, you know, much more significant institutions from the base that I was starting from because... IBM calls you up and says, we need you to train 7,000 people. Well, that means you need a whole bunch of trained trainers and blah, blah, blah. So you move through the curve and do this. And I said, well, I could do that, but I like the froth. So I have a studio. And what it means to have a studio is you have turnover, and turnover is okay. Because when people get bored, well, now they have a resume that's going to get them into Skidmore at a higher level. Congratulations. I'll write you a letter of recommendation. You didn't fail here. You succeeded here. But what we do at a studio is we're always going to take cutting-edge projects that don't make us enough money, where we're under-respected but over-applauded. That's what we do. It's a studio. So if you're going to do that, own that, be clear with the team, we're looking for more frothy early adopters, and if you need stability because you've got your third kid on the way, let me help you find a place to do that. Or you say, nope, we're a different kind of firm now, and if you're begging me for the zing, I don't have zing here anymore. Here's someone who just graduated from school. I'll help you go there. Because that's what we've got now going forward. We're way more similar to the Hollywood model of we create value by putting together the team that's going to make Black Panther. And that team's never going to work again together. 
But they'll remember each other three years from now, and when I need a few of them, Mission Impossible style, I'll put them all back together because that's where the yield is. We can't build the factory that cranks it out the way Ford did for 60 years of record profits. Facebook's not going to have 60 years of record profits. Facebook's got a 10-more-year run, and then something else is going to be next. So that model is, again, a shift from what our parents taught us. Thank you. And we can talk about showers later. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm going to go to this side soon so you don't have to be there bored. So someone over here, get ready for a question. Yes, sir. Hi. Thanks for uh, being here tonight. Really appreciate it. Seeing you before. I really enjoyed it. Quick question, uh, digital marketer, really moving toward marketing. So I'm glad you supported that statement earlier. Uh, one of my big concerns, though, or actually, I'll just leave it open-ended. What is going to happen to Amazon? Is it a 10-year run? So every time I've ever been in a room with Jeff Bezos, he's been the smartest person in the room. <laughs> and that counts Ted. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, the ratchet, which I haven't talked about yet, um, that he is building is, I think, pretty profound. One of the basic human needs ever since there has been stuff is to acquire stuff. And to think that one could corner the market on the process of acquiring stuff was so audacious that no one even expected he meant it. That he told Barnes & Noble what he was going to do, and then he did it. And then he announced to each one of the industries he was going into exactly what he's going to do, and he's done it because his ratchet is so powerful. So let me explain what I mean by a ratchet. Uh, if you go to the hardware store, you can buy a wrench that when you go this way, it puts in friction, but when you go this way, nothing happens. So it can only go one direction. So if you think about certain kinds of technology, Kevin Kelly has written about this, there are technology ratchets. If you get a smartphone, odds are the first week you only used it half an hour a day. But using it makes you use it more, which makes you use it more, which makes you use it more, and it ratchets in one direction. It turns out that when people move out of abject poverty and enter a middle class, there's a capitalist ratchet that goes into play because each person has just a little bit of spending money, which enables them to engage with a merchant, which gives them more spending money, and the whole ratchet continues. So our goal, if we're going to build something of substance, is to say, what's the ratchet? That as this gets used, it gets used more. And I think that what's profound about the seven businesses where Amazon is thriving is that most of them have a ratchet associated with them. So I don't own stock in any companies on purpose because I'm really bad at this, but it's hard for me to see when that ratchet breaks and how it breaks, but it's been absolutely stunning to watch. I think they haven't taken as much care with some of the innocent bystanders as they could, and I think that uh, in retrospect, they probably would do some of those things differently. I hope so. And that as AI starts entering this process and we start dealing with other countries and we start dealing with kids and we start dealing with how are we shading people's choices, I think their responsibilities are through the roof and they better own them to be good citizens. But from a business point of view, there's a ratchet going on there, just like Google search turned into a ratchet. Over on this side, three people. 
We'll go to the front row, then we'll go two rows back, and then we'll go to that gentleman in the back, right here. Oh, I'm sorry, was there someone else in the front row? We'll come back to you in a second. Yes. Me first. Go, go. Um, thank you very much for what you said earlier about being generous. I, my original question was marrying my past, my corporate experience with my entrepreneurial present. So I left my corporate job in 2004. I've struggled. I started a factory. This is too much background. Right, right. But, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to kind of marry both. And I think that the answer is to find selflessness or to be less selfish. Is that the answer to my question? To marry I think both? that's the answer to every question. Okay. But instead of wondering where your tools are going to come from, the question is, who are you seeking to change? What change are you trying to make? And it's a really simple question. Michael Schrag wrote an ebook about it. It's only 38 pages long or something. Who? Michael Schrag, okay, S-C-H-R-A-G-E from MIT. Every important entity, bureaucracy, marketer, institution, makes a change happen. What change are you seeking to make? The more profound the change, the more generous the change, the better. You can worry about all the other narrative part later. First, begin there. What do you see that's not working? Chickens in Ethiopia, people in Orange County who need a cell phone, something. What change are you trying to make? Start there. All right, Vincent, Thank tell you. us about your new Thank book. You. Where is it? Oh, that's not But I'm just giving you a little product placement here. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. What's up? Thank you very much. Um, we have three boys. We homeschool, and we are traveling across the country right now as a family for a couple of months. And we have carte blanche to teach how we want to teach. Right. What for you would be the most important things to teach? Yes. And what is not important to teach? In Stop Stealing Dreams, I wrote that, and I haven't changed my mind, to only two things. Solve interesting problems, lead. That if you can raise a kid who can consistently solve interesting problems, because anything else can be looked up and who can lead, which requires emotional intelligence and generosity, what else do you need? Because the rest of it can take care of itself. And how do you teach those two things? There are no lectures, they just have to do them. The way you learn to solve interesting problems is by solving interesting problems. The way you learn how to lead is by leading. And you know, it was a long journey raising my kids and not being a hypocrite, but it was worth every minute of it. That the difference between a kid who learns to use physics and electricity to build a pneumatic potato gun that can shoot a potato 40 miles an hour over the Hudson River is completely different than using physics and electricity to get a B-plus on a physics test, right? Because what does F equal MV even mean? MA. What does it even mean? <laughs> I knew it was wrong. I gave credit for that. And so that thinking... Your kids are so lucky to have you. And just don't worry about whether or not they can, can conjugate a verb. If it's important enough to them, they'll figure out how to conjugate a verb. But we can't let up on the other two things. They have to be committed to those two things. Thank you. All right, we're going to run the microphone all the way back to here. I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Sufi. Susie? Sufi. Sufi. Sufi's waiting. And then the gentleman in the three-piece suit. Okay, Sufi, how am I doing on time, Brian? We're doing well. Okay, we it's 6.44, and what time are we doing, doing the recording? Uh, we've got about 15 more minutes. Till we break? 
Because uh, you wanted to have some build-up time for uh, the thing. Yeah, so I think we'll break in about 15 minutes, and uh, we'll reset. We'll take a little intermission. Great. And during the intermission, I'm going to sign books or yeah. take very quick pictures. Okay, go, quick. Hi, um, hi Seth. Hi. Uh, I'm head of product at a social media platform, and uh, I think we all know the feeling of sorting through a bunch of nonsense as we see cultivated perspectives on topics we actually care about. Okay. Um, in my industry, it feels like substance sinks to the bottom and yeah. superficiality rises to the top. Easily measured metrics win right. every time. Yeah. Virality over real. Um, I'd like to fix that. And as somebody who shapes products, talking to somebody who I think is emblematic of the kind of content I think should be more findable, what do you wish I could keep in mind as I solve the problem? Well, if we make a list of all of the I'm sure this is the last chapter tech companies that are gone. It is longer than this. That the arrogance that went with these metrics was completely ill-founded because they, were, they established what the scoreboard was, they racked up a big score, and then they disappeared because the scoreboard wasn't the right scoreboard. They weren't keeping track of the right thing. So until you can keep track of the right thing and get enrollment from senior management that that is the right thing, if I could make this number go up, would that be good? If you can go to the shareholders and say, if we can make this number go up, applaud us, then you can do it. But if you can't, it doesn't matter how well-meaning you are, they're going to keep track of something else. And so I have real problems with Google's evolution of the search results pages because they are washing their hands of their impact on the culture, but they've changed everything because of what pages are getting built and what things people are seeing. But they say it's the algorithm, but it's not the algorithm. You wrote the algorithm. And I know no one understands it anymore, but it could be rewritten. And so we can keep track of something different. So I think you know what I want to keep track of. What I'm really interested not here in real time, but over time to hear from you is, what are you interested in? What's the metric that matters to you? And Facebook has a crisis coming up because they've sold investors on one metric and now they claim they want a different metric. And that's not going to be an easy thing for a public company to do because there are 10 or 20,000 people in the room whose stock options are counting on going up. And when they stop going up, it's going to be really hard to go to a meeting and say, let's do more of that thing that made our stock options go down. And that's what makes companies evil, is Wall Street keeping track of the wrong thing and stock options being on the table. And you say, oh, I got to do it for my kids because that's my job. And then the cultural output is bad. So I, I wish I had a more positive rant for you. Yes, sir, you've been very patient. Uh, I appreciate the elucidation, as we all do. Um, earlier, you mentioned that there are three books you suggest politicians who reach out to you, mm -hmm. read. Uh, what are those books and why did you select those for the political class to take in? I uh, send them permission marketing because unbelievably they don't understand it. Uh, tribes because it's uh, simple with short sentences but really clear about <laughs> what it means to um, create something that people want to be part of. 
and the worst titled book I've ever created, which is All Marketers Are Liars. And I learned from titling that book that putting the title of a book that feels insulting to the people you seek to buy the book, <laughs> not a good idea. It was clever, but not a good idea. And the thesis of the book is all we got is stories. Stories are what people buy. Stories are what people vote for. If the story is true, it's way better than if the story isn't true because stories that are true hold up over time. And if you can figure out how to tell a story that resonates with the worldview of someone who had long before you showed up, it's a hundred times easier to make change happen. And if you listen to the sound bites and to the slogans and to the position papers that come out not just out of Washington but out of Brussels or wherever the EU is and out of you know, Kenya or wherever the, that government is, is located uh, in Nairobi, they don't understand because they're not telling stories. They're saying GDP and all everyone hears is like a Peanuts cartoon with the noise as opposed to something that resonated. And if we look, if we compare that to one of the great tribal success stories of our time, Harley-Davidson. Harley-Davidson doesn't tell you what zero to 60 is on one of their cruisers. That's not the point. The point is people like us drive a cruiser like this. The point is that dream you've had since you were 12, this is the way for that dream to come true and for your status in your community to go up. I'm never going to own a Harley because it's not for me. That story's not for me. It doesn't resonate with my worldview. But I can see the story and so that's the job of a leader, is to figure out a story that talks to our dreams and our fears in the right measure, and then make it true. And it's been fascinating to watch the vacillations, because we really have two things going on. We have a fairly effective bureaucracy that every day does extraordinary things to make things work. And then we have a political argument that goes on all the time that rarely is based in stories that are actually effective. So I got time for a few more. So we'll go back there, and then we'll come up here. Hey, Seth, saw you like two years ago, and you shared a company called Happy Socks with me that said, because you wear mismatching socks, fun story, what socks are you rocking? <laughs> yes, sir. I haven't worn matching socks one day for 14 years. They're always the same thickness, which is very important. <laughs> Should I tell that story real quick? So in the book, Purple Cow, I talk about a company called Little Mismatch that's not for everybody. It's for 12-year-old girls, but not all 12-year-old girls. It's 12-year-old girls with a fashion problem. And their fashion problem is they don't have enough to talk about during recess. Their mom's not going to buy them a new dress every day. So they can wear mismatched socks to school. They're not early adopter enough to mismatch their own socks. They buy pre-mismatched socks. And then they can go to school and they can say to their friends, want to see my socks? And want to see my socks is their entire business model. And when I first discovered them, they had half a million dollars a year in revenue. And the last time I checked, they were at $40 million a year, selling socks that don't match to a tiny group of people who need a story to tell. And that in one, that's why my sock, I remind myself every day. But I don't wear that brand anymore, because my kids rolled their eyes one too many times that I was wearing socks for 12-year-old girls. So <laughs> now I mismatch my own socks by buying adult socks. 
Um, I'm frustrated with AI and marketing because I feel like people think it's actually doing something more than just math. And AI now in marketing, or the way the way it's sold or pitched, or um, yeah. Uh, the way people are using it is really not AI at all. It's math. Um, it's these things over here are working better, so do more of that. Mm -hmm. These aren't, so do less of it. But we've changed that where where I'm at, and you know, you're at an AI company. No, oh. I'm, at, I'm at a home improvement company. Okay, but we have kind of ditched persona marketing and AI, and at least the way it's deployed. Um, but everyone talks about it, and everyone's trying to use it the way they think it's working, but it's not. I don't know if you have any Oh, I have a that. rant on every topic. I was a, com <laughs> I was a computer science major and loved science fiction, so there was a beautiful overlap. Here's the definition of AI that will be useful for everyone here. AI is everything a computer can't do yet. So as soon as a computer could play chess, we said, well, that's not AI. It's good at chess. But the things it can't do yet? That's going to be perfect and amazing. But you said one thing that isn't true. All computers do ever is math. That's all they know how to do. It's just we're bad at processing magic, and so we make up a story that the computer knows something, that the computer thinks something. There's a lot of air quotes going on. And it doesn't know anything. It doesn't think anything. It's just doing a lot of math really fast. So the way that AI is changing our world is by nibbling around the edges. So if you're a radiologist, there are no radiologists here, you're in big trouble because it turns out reading x-rays is math. And computers are already good enough to do most radiology, and soon they're going to be better than any radiologist because it's just math. So if you spend all those years learning what you think of as heuristics and instincts, well, as soon as someone can write down what you know, a computer is going to do it cheaper than you. And so the art of this is to keep changing what you do so that no one can write it down. So you're always going to be ahead of what the computers do. Six, All right. mi six minutes. Six minutes. Please, go ahead. Just talk, quick, fast. Um, I am a licensed therapist, and I do leadership development with. Yes. Okay. I do leadership development with entrepreneurial founders, and you said the top two things that a child needs to learn. One is to be a leader. So I'm curious, how would you define a strong leader? Leading and managing are not the same things. They are as far apart as they could be. Managers get things done that were done yesterday, except they get them done faster and cheaper over and over and over again. Management is about compliance and power. We need management. Leadership is about none of those things. Leadership is about gaining enrollment, sharing a vision, and then trusting people to help you get there, even though you don't know how. Because if you knew how, it would be management. Right? And so leaders are wrong all the time until they're right. They're like a plane flying from here to San Jose. They're off course the whole way, and the pilot adjusts until she lands. That's leading. It's not managing. And what it takes to be a leader, then, is to see your own fear and to understand the narrative of the people you seek to lead to gain their enrollment. And Kelly has done some unbelievable work in talking about how we 
can do this each one of us inside the Alt-MBA because it's about selling people not on why you are right, but on why we should all be enrolled in where we're going. And if you're good at that, it doesn't even matter if you were right because the journey itself is a big part of what we signed up for and we're willing to do it again. And so the reason that entrepreneurs need therapists is not because of management, it's because of leadership. Managers don't need therapists. Managers just need to be more clear. But leadership in a place where you have to get people's buy-in and can't order them around, that is hard work. So let's do one last question that feels like a good capstone. Do you feel like it's a good capstone? Own it. Go, go, go. Here's your microphone. Okay. So I'm about to be a marketing graduate from Chapman University, and I'm wondering what is your best advice about how I should differentiate myself from all the other marketers? Okay, number one, differentiation is selfish. Differentiation says, how do I get more than my fair share? The real thing is to say, what problems can I see that other people have that I can solve for them that other people aren't willing to solve for them? That's different. That's service. That's generosity. But the second thing is... At this stage in your life, the single best way to learn marketing is to do marketing, not to get a marketing job. So, I know you need a job, go get a job, but in all of your spare time, because you've got seven hours a day that you're not watching TV or Facebook, for seven hours a day, do marketing for something you believe in, start a Shopify site, help a nonprofit, market, 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 market. Because if you want to get a job a year later, all these other Chapman grads are going to say, here's my resume. And you're going to say, I built a $2 million company. You want to see it? Or I raised $4 million for the local homeless shelter. You want to see? They're going to hire you because you understand how to help them solve their problem because you have done marketing. This is one of the only, you can't learn to do, be a surgeon by doing surgery, but you can learn to be a marketer by doing marketing. And you should immediately. Anyway, thank you. You were an amazing Q&A session. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you to everybody. So, Brian, where should I go stand? Okay. So we, we could use that white thing, that, or is that in the? Or we be in the way if we do it here? Oh, I think uh, we have a place for you out there to okay. sign books. I'm going to go hands, do that while babies. you're talking. We're going to do a quick intermission. We're two thirds done. The last third of this is going to be Seth and I on stage in these comfy chairs, and you're going to witness as a live audience our interview. Uh, but now please stand and uh, move around and feel free to go outside and get a drink or use the restroom or talk to Seth, take a selfie. And we'll be back here at about 7.15.